following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Uh, let's start by turning to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. As you're doing so, I just want to wish you a very happy convenience store day to everybody. You do realize it's July 11th, 7-11-21. Uh, I was thinking about this idea of 7-11 day. Uh, there's not a lot of holidays or special days that we usually call by the date. You got the 4th of July. Uh, it's actually Independence Day. Or you got like, we don't usually call it this the, the 5th of May or the Cinco de Mayo. Uh, but this one we do. So for all it's worth, we'll get you free Slurpee. Uh, for all those at home, thankfully for you, you can mute this tomfooler if you want to. Um, but I just want to say good morning to you all. We love you and miss you. Desire to be here with us again soon. And we're praying for you. Uh, we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ together this morning. Uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed. It's not just something we say on, uh, on Easter, but rather we rejoice today, the Lord's day, in his resurrection power. Um, you know, we, we have an opportunity to fellowship in Christ together, to pray together, to sing both to our God and to one another. Of course, to hear the preaching of the word with one another. And in a few moments after we're done here, of this time of preaching, participate in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ together. It's no small grace then. I, I just want to make sure we understand this. It's no small grace for us to be able to worship together with the saints for the glory of God. Our posture then, we, we know this is true, but our posture ought to be one of thanksgiving. We recognize who we are and what we've been given in Christ. But if you're like me, it's very easy to forget that. And so this morning, even as we begin to start, I want you to remember God's grace in this and both repent of our own sin, but also ask him for fresh grace as we go to him. We would have a heart of thanksgiving. Let me go ahead and read our text. It's going to be in 2 Peter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 and then verses 12 through 15. I'll read it, and then I'll take us to the Lord's uh, the throne room in prayer for thanksgiving and asking him to give us grace this morning. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, and then 12 through 15. This is God's word. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, now go down to verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able, to, may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, uh, we come to you this morning in thanksgiving. You are our creator, the upholder and owner of all things. You give us all things, and so we thank you. Uh, as we begin another day, we, we, we take our place beneath our Redeemer's cross. It's here that we recognize your healing streams continually flow, where you give us medicine for our every wound. It's here that we wash in your all-cleansing blood, and it's only here at the cross that we are assured that you see no spot of sin in us. So, thank you. 
Thank you for your temporal blessings, refreshing air, the light of the sun outside today, the, the food that strengthens us, the clothes that cover us, even the houses that shelter us. We rejoice in the pleasure of music, the beauty of art, and even the never-ending amazement we find as we look at your creation. We glory in you, the giver, the one, who's the, the one who makes the starry canopy at night, the summer breeze and the flower sweetness, flowing streams, and even the gift of family, friends, and loved ones. God, as we gather together then, on this Lord's Day, we're thankful for more than just your common grace. We're thankful that you have revealed your Son to us, wicked sinners. We rejoice in our great treasure, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give grace to those who do not know you. We ask that you would break through hard and stony ground and give some for the first time the gift of a soft heart. We pray that you would give blind men the gift of spiritual eyesight this morning. And we also ask that you would help us, us that know you, to receive your word this morning with believing hearts. Give us strength, dear Lord. Would you convict us of sin and give us holy affections for you? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you ever um, expected to get a certain thing, and then when it time came, came time to get that thing, you got something different? You thought something was coming to you, and then you realized something else came to you. I, I feel like this has happened several times in my life. Uh, I don't know if it happens to everybody exactly the same, but sometimes are more memorable than others. I can remember growing up uh, as a child, and uh, I can just remember my sister had finished up her meal, and she had a little bit left in her cup for her drink. Uh, I had had milk. I thought that's what she was going to give me. She, she said, you can have, you can finish off. We were kind of getting ready to, to tear down the table. So I just went back and slammed back a big cup of milk is what I thought, and it turned out to be water. Like, that was just a disappointment to me. I love milk, and all I got was water. Like, that was boring to me. I can also remember a, a little more memorable time. Uh, I was a teenager on a missions trip with our youth group, and uh, we were finishing up our time in a foreign country, one that spoke Spanish, and uh, we'd visit this, we visited this little resort at the final day before we took off in the flight home. It was really nice. Uh, and of course, they were serving tropical fruity drinks as well. Um, and we were all teenagers at the time. We were instructed by our sponsors to make sure we asked for these drinks without alcohol. So of course we did this. Um, and, and when I got mine, I was excited about it. Like, you know, I had the little umbrella there. It was in like a little coconut and all the things. It was really special. I thought it was really cool. Um, and like the milk... I was ready to just slam this thing back. I was so excited about it. It's going to be, you know, mangoes and pineapple and berries and all kinds of delicious tropical cold sweet fruit. And so I slam it back and it is like sour and kind of bitter. And then like my throat is getting real hot. Yeah, you know what's going on here. I don't know if it got lost in translation. I did not, I did not, I did not ask for that. But I was not expecting that. I was expecting something cool and sweet and perfectly refreshed that I could just easily chuck. Now, why do I start out with these illustrations? Because today, I want you to feel comfortable getting ready to switch gears. I told you last week what we were going to preach today, what I was going to preach, but we're going to shift a little bit. Last week, I gave you a little roadmap of the coming weeks. Today, I planned to talk about knowing God through Christian fasting. That was the plan through denying ourselves physical bread for the sake of feasting on true bread, Christ. But from the start of this, to drop into the subject kind of assumes that you and I both understand 
why and how we ought to pursue something like this. When I say something like this, I'm talking about trying to do the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace that God has supplied for us to grow. So I began working on kind of an introduction to help us uh, understand the pursuit of spiritual disciplines. But quickly, I realized that this was too important of a topic to just give you a few paragraphs and jump in. And so as my sermon was growing to two times the size of what it normally was, yesterday I gave a call to Jordan and said, hey man, I've got to change this. I don't think I can, I can do them both well. I'll really be trying to preach two sermons at once. And I think it'll be worth our time to slow down and make sure we understand what we're doing when we're pursuing these means of grace, spiritual disciplines together. And so today, that's what I want to do. I want to help us understand how we ought to pursue these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines that God has given to us in a way that we can come out humbly loving God and receiving from his hand what we ourselves cannot supply. So let's begin here. This is the question. How do I get God's blessing? How do I get God's blessing? And if you've read the Bible at all, or if you've been around Cornerstone or good preaching, you know I am not saying, how do I get more stuff? How do I get more money? How do I get more power and pleasure? How do I get more success? That's not what I'm asking about when I talk about God's blessing here. I'm saying, we, we understand that we can struggle with that, but I'm asking, how do we get more of God? How do we become more like Jesus Christ? How do we grow in holiness? I'm really asking, how do we grow in our awareness of God? How do we grow close to God and live in light of his majesty? How do we get more joy, true Christian joy? How do we grow in virtue or in knowledge? How do we grow in self-control or in Christian steadfastness? How do I get the power to live like a true Christian? How do I grow in godliness? And I know, if we really think about this, right, that to do these things in my own strength, to kind of white-knuckle it, to pull myself up my bootstraps and be more holy or do better or be more right, that this will not result in righteousness. In fact, to try to perform good works in my own strength, we know from Isaiah 64, is actually like filthy rags to God. It is like a polluted garment, disgusting to Him, when I try to do it on my own. To try to be more Christ-like without Christ ends in more sin. To try to get close to God without humbly drawing close to God on his terms results in pride, emptiness, vanity, and self-deception. And worse than that, doing these things eventually leads to the chastening hand of a loving father. I'm talking about Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And I mean pain by that. Discipline of a loving father who will not allow his sheep to forever go away. Therefore, I know that I need God to work in me. I need him to be the first mover. I, I need him to act on my behalf to carry me through, to energize me, to give me perseverance, to, to help me endure and do what is right. I need him to even enlighten me and give me truly a loving heart, a clean conscience, so that I may be used for his service. But we also know that it's not as simple as sitting down and waiting for it to come as though somehow I'm going to get some sort of spiritual download if I just claim to be a Christian. Sometimes we kind of think about it that way, but maybe there's one step further than that. We kind of think sometimes also that maybe it's not just exactly automatic quite like that, but maybe by my participation in certain prescribed holy actions that we find in the Bible. Um, let's be honest. 
We sometimes believe that this is how God works. I recognize that this might seem like we're going too far, but we're sometimes like functional Roman Catholics, trusting in the efficacy of the actual actions themselves instead of our God. So can, can, can going to church, can reading the Bible, can praying help us grow in godliness? Of course it can, absolutely. I mean, the little Sunday school song, Read Your Bible, Pray Every Day, is a good song. But it does miss a profound key element if we expect to grow, grow, grow. What I'm getting at is the element of God's grace. What I'm getting at is that this is not a secular pursuit of more knowledge. God's gracious givingness is what we're talking about, the empowerment of God to help us receive that which he gives and then live in light of that. And we know that grace then highlights the necessity that our faith is in someone other than ourselves to do that which God has called us to. God's grace, as we know from Ephesians 2, works through faith to save and change a dead man into one who is actually alive. And that someone that we trust is not the church, it's not ourselves. That someone to give us grace is God himself. Now, the Roman Catholic Church proclaims, according to the ex opere operato interpretation of the sacraments, any positive effect comes not from a person's worthiness or faith, but from the sacrament as an instrument of God. In other words, the thing itself, reading scripture, praying, attending church services, taking the Lord's Supper, will convey grace almost automatically without regard to worthiness or faith. Ooh, there's what we really need to make sure we do not follow the Roman Catholic Church. We'd agree, of course, that it isn't based on our worthiness. Amen. We recognize that. But does it not work somehow in conjunction with our faith in Christ? I mean, it's not like a light thing to talk about this. You realize that. It's not that the Scriptures only suggest it. It requires it. Think about Habakkuk 2 and first, uh, Romans 1. Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17 are the famous ones quoted by Luther, right? Righteous shall live by what? Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's an engaged heart, one that trusts God alone, not one that trusts the instrument of the sacraments or the instrument of doing good works or the instrument of the spiritual disciplines. No, the grace of God is not automatic Neither is it simply found engaging the instruments of grace, the sacraments. It is found not also in just doing things over and over again. Liturgy, repetition of good holy things. Both of which, by the way, are things that we do regularly. I don't know if you know what we do the last Sunday, the Sunday before that, the Sunday before that, but it's been a lot of the same. We continue to do these things over and over. Sing, pray, trust, preach, respond. It's right for us to repeat. My, my point is that just the repeating of things over and over and over again does not accrue righteousness. It does not somehow impart grace apart from us jumping in and being engaged in this process. And certainly grace is not found in the hands of me. I don't, I don't, I don't have grace to sprinkle out, y'all. I can't help you like that. that. The grace is not for me. The grace is not found in the church. The grace is found in God alone. We all know and we would agree to the fact that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith, trusting him alone. We know this from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But maybe we forgot about the next verse that tells us what our salvation is to. Listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, so that we do them? No, no. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, does the holy work of salvation, accomplished by God's grace through faith, move one from this posture of grace to a posture wherein now we accomplish the rest of the good works that we're supposed to do by our own white-knuckling and by our self-wrought works and by our effort alone? No, of course not. We know this not to be true. We know this is not the case. In fact, Paul makes this very plain in Galatians 3, 2, and through 4. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Ready? He's, he's, he's making sure that they're thinking. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? This is a way of describing salvation. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Now, the rhetorical question Paul's asking kind of makes us all backpedal. Like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm perfected by the flesh. Of course not. I would, I would never say that. But I think if we're really honest, each of us often struggles with this very thing, that somehow we, by our efforts and strength, do kind of believe that we move ourselves along in sanctification. Uh, listen to how Paul describes his own Christian growth. This is Paul speaking. If you want to turn there, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 10. If not, I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says this. Listen to the threefold uh, time he talks about grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul is saying that he worked, he scraped, he struggled to do what he was supposed to do in his Christian life. But none of that scraping and clawing and struggling ever mounted to his Christian growth. What did it was the grace of God. Do you understand that without the grace of God, all that scraping and struggling and attempts and effort would only be sin? He is saying it's according to the grace of God that's within him. It's the gift of God. God is the author, the sustainer, and the perfecter of Paul's faith. Paul says in his letter to Titus, in chapters 3, verses 4 through 8, we actually read it this morning, the exact same thing. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now listen to closely the next one he says. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. To devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. It's amazing what's coming out of his mouth. He just proclaims the grace of God and now says, be devoted to good works. I mean, Jesus tells us that the central goal for us, the, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He teaches thus over and over in his, in his teachings. And we all know 
that it leads to something, right? We all know John 14, 15. It tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. But I don't know if we've heard it on blast until we listen to verse 21. Listen to this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, okay? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Guys, this is what we want. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that if you love me, you will be one who easily and loves to and wants to keep my commandments. And if you are one who keeps my commandments, if you love me, I will, the Father will love you, I will love you, and I will manifest myself to you. I, I, we've said this before. If you get Jesus and you get nothing else, you get everything. He sustains all things. He's the creator of all things. He holds it together, and he's the king over all the universe. If we have Christ, we have everything. Jesus makes it clear that we, as lovers then of Christ, uh, should be doing this. It just should be enough. It should really be enough for us to say, wow, I want to obey his commands. We will do his will. We will even be seen by other people doing these things. And what will they do? Glorify the Father. This should be enough for us as we want to do good works. But if it's not, listen to Paul. Paul comes along and further clarifies for us all that happens when God has made someone alive by grace through faith. As we've seen already in these two passages, Ephesians 2.10 and then Titus 3.8, that we are called to trust Christ alone, which results in a life that's characterized by God-honoring good works. In a life that pursues godly actions. In, in, in a word, a life that is holy, godly. Now, those of us who reject the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church uh, are a little bit allergic to talking about the pursuit of good works, right? I, I, I'm one of them. I, like, pursuing good works seems like works righteousness or works salvation somehow. I'm talking to all of us here, and I get it, right? Good works are not to be used to get something. We know the idea of good works has really fallen on a lot of bad times over and over throughout church history, especially in the Protestant church. Uh, a lot of times it will point Christians, Protestant Christians, wickedly to claim a convictionless Christianity. One in a sense where Christianity is thankful for the gospel and for its application, but rides on the one act of grace. There's no need for grace-filled obedience over and over again. We sometimes call this antinomianism. And we get it. To promote the pursuit of good works can really easily be misunderstood and abused by our own wicked hearts. But it's here that we need to make sure that we understand the order. It sounds like a, a nerdy thing, but it's really important. Here are some big important theological terms you've probably heard already. Justification, sanctification. Not the same thing. Justification, sanctification. Justification is God's declaration of our righteousness because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Sanctification is God's work to make justified people holy, to make justified sinners righteous. Justification comes to us only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth that our God is holy, benevolent, kind, and he owns everything. It's the truth that we have sinned against him, and incurred the wrath of a just and holy God. But he's not only the just, praise God, he's also the justifier. How does he do that? 
It's the, it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, sending the second person of the, of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, on the cross to take the wrath of God for me and you. And by faith, we trust him and him alone. Jesus died for the sins of his people and took the wrath of God. And in doing so, he conquered Satan, sin, and death. That's what I mean when I'm talking about justification, that God declared us righteous as we trusted Christ. Our justification is based not on us, but on Christ's righteousness. That's our justification. I'm trying to say as clearly as possible now uh, that justification comes first, and then, and only then, do we begin, and still by God's grace through faith, but only then do we begin to operate out of his gracious justification. And operating out of that gracious justification is called sanctification. It's God making us holy. Uh, only after we have been declared righteous by God, the divine judge, do we begin to grow in sanctification, in moral righteousness, in virtue, in obedience to God, and in holiness. Paul handles these two realities really nicely. He kind of talks about this in Romans 6.22. He says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, justification, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You've heard this before, if, if you've been around at all, like, like during the whole book of Ephesians. Uh, sanctification is the command, the Christian command for us to go be who we are in Christ. Remember the whole book of Ephesians was split right down the middle. The first part talked about who we are in Christ based on his righteousness alone. The second half was all about sanctification. Go be who you are in Christ. One Christian theologian has said, where most people think that the goal of religion is to get people to become something they are not, the scriptures call believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ. We see clearly then that the pursuit of good works in the right way is not only good, but it is commanded. If all of what we've been talking about so far today is true, it seems then that a Christian ought always to be concerned about loving God with his whole heart, soul, and mind and fleshing that out in good works and being concerned to live in a godly fashion. In fact, we know that the proper response to knowing and receiving Jesus by faith is a life of worship. You probably know this because you've read Romans 12.1. You remember us, he talks about this, we present our bodies by the mercies of God as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a response to what he has done in Christ. We ought to pursue Jesus Christ and train ourselves in the way of godliness. And actually Paul says this to his protege Timothy in almost those words. 1 Timothy 4, 7-9, through 9, he says this, and you've heard it. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Did you catch that? Bodily training is of some value. Okay, we all agree with that statement. But if we were to look at some of our lives, we would see that bodily training gets way more time than our training in godliness. I mean, some of us drive to a place, work out at that place, cool down from that place, 
Then we drive back, and then we kind of start the rest of our day. Make sure you hear me very clearly. I am not saying stop going to the gym or working out. Not at all. I'm asking you to consider the amount of time, resources, and energy you give to exercising the body. And I'm asking you simply, is it commensurate with what you do in training in godliness? Do you give the same resources, time, energy to pursue training in godliness? I would encourage you all, of course, of course, guys, to live a healthy lifestyle with good exercise. But I want you and I to seriously consider the amount of time that we're putting into bodily training compared to the training in godliness. Brothers and sisters, my goodness, how easy it is for us to focus on our perceived needs, the things that we need to do, our interests, thinking that we need to work on ourselves. I'm simply asking you to consider what part of yourself are you working on? Is it the part that will one day turn to dust? I mean, guys, it's, it's, it's only going to go downhill from here, I know. I know it's pretty good, but it's only going to get worse. Eventually, I'm just going to be a pile of wrinkles on the floor, dust after that. It's just not going to go very well. But you know what? By God's grace, I believe the scriptures, I will live on forever. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know or anything that's not true for you either. You realize that's what we're talking about here? He is telling us an eternal perspective on exercise. Yes, your bodily exercise is good. Do it. But it's like only of some value. I'll give you the one that has a promise for this life and the one to come. So I call us to, to think about the energy that we expend in our pursuit of godliness. This idea really brings us to our text today from 2 Peter 1. The book of 2 Peter seems to be particularly concerned with one thing, that we grow in godliness. He's unashamed to tell these Christians that they ought to pursue godliness, that they should be pursuing living like Christ. He says things like, make every effort. I mean, he's like a way better CrossFit coach. He's like, come on, make every effort. He says stuff like, be all the more diligent. He is a zealot when it comes to Christian good works. Before we get to verse 12 to 15, though, I want to read verses 3 through 11 for you. And if it's tough for you to listen to me um, read, let me give you a synopsis of what's going to happen here. It's really simple. He's going to start out talking about what we as Christians have been given in Christ, how wonderful it is. In other words, he starts out by giving us a picture of God's immense grace. And then he is going to show us what it looks like to be called to grow in godliness. And then by the end, he's going to tell us why we should grow in godliness. So listen along, or you can read along if you want to see there. 2 Peter 1, 3-11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is being very straightforward. Peter is calling us to pursue godliness. He's calling us to grow in Christ-likeness, to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, to be disciples, guys. Be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since both our justification and our sanctification are gracious acts of God, meaning we must completely depend on God for His grace for both of those things, I propose that we should be asking one more vitally important question. Here it is. How do I get more grace? How do I get more of God's grace? He's called me to godliness, and we know it can't just be me white-knuckling and do my best, but it's got to be infused with God's grace. How do I get more grace? I mean, how do I be happy in God? How do I love Him? How do I obey? How do I get more of God's power to obey? How do I have the ability to love my annoying brother or sister? How do I uh, pre uh, persevere in trials? How do I grow to be more like Jesus and bring glory to God the Father? I'm just asking, how do I get the grace to grow in godliness? I mean, guys, is it only me who uh, finds myself weary and empty, but somehow I'm still trying to live on yesterday's grace experience? Like stuff that's happened to me in the past where God was so good to me and I'm thankful for that, but I, I just don't really have time, so I wrap it all up and I'm like, kind of remember it. If we're truly believers, we know we've all experienced times of great refreshing, renewing of true love for one another, fellowship, sweet fellowship with God and genuine repentant hearts. We've experienced these things before. But if we're honest, it seems like we get to this point and it's so good, but man, it's so much work to get there. I just, I just don't have that kind of time to draw close to God. I feel like I can just take a minute and kind of remember what God has done before and kind of ride on the coattails of God's past grace to me without ever drawing from Him or approaching Him anew. I mean, how often have we rushed into a day of work or a situation where we know it's going to be rough or just like the run-of-the-mill day? all the stuff that we normally do day in, day out, without ever grasping or pursuing fresh grace for that opportunity. I hope you understand me. This is, a pastoral, this is a pastoral message because it's a pastoral message for me. The reason I'm like passionate about this is because I realize this is exactly what I need. I realize I operate regularly in my life basing it off of past grace instead of drawing close to him, asking that he pour fresh grace on me that I would do what he has called me to, that he would change my heart, that I would actually be more holy in my decisions. This is what I need. How often I've rushed in without grasping or pursuing fresh grace from God. I think if we're all honest, and I mean we are all honest, we do not regularly seek God in this way for his grace. Don't get me wrong. We expect it. We have our theology, right? We expect him to do it, to pour out grace, lots of grace on us. Praise God, he does. I'm just saying, by simply by being a Christian, we believe that it just somehow gets sprinkled on us. And the truth is, we're thankful that God regularly does outpour his grace that's unasked for oftentimes. But brothers and sisters, hear me when I say, why would we ever settle for the spritzing of grace 
when we could come near to him, placing ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace, the ability for him to change us. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the word waterfall of God's grace. Don't worry, it's not like some special holy land place where you go and you stand underneath that waterfall. I'm not talking about that. God has ordained for us to draw close to him. This is not going to be surprising. Through very normal and yet wonderful means of grace, such as Bible reading, praying to him, and gathering with his people. This is what I've kind of been dancing around all morning, what I've been talking about. We're talking about the simple means of grace, or you may call them spiritual disciplines. I'm talking about pursuing God's word, pursuing God's ear, and pursuing God's people. Now, I didn't come up with that. A guy named David Mathis wrote a book, and he put it that way, and I think it's so helpful. As we pursue spiritual disciplines, we're pursuing God's word, the Bible. We're pursuing God's ear through prayer. We're pursuing God's people, the church. And these are regular means of grace that build us up in godliness. We've already seen this morning that that doesn't mean that it's automatic down, download. Neither is it simply coming to hook ourselves up to this instrument of the sacraments or the means of grace. We already saw that just doing things alone doesn't automatically make us more close to God, more godly. It is by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we trust him, we pursue him, we humbly ask that he would give us more grace and that we learn then to come to the channels or the pathways of his grace. This, this little series that I'm beginning, I'm kind of giving us a foundation and I'll come back to it probably throughout the year and the next year as well, just sprinkling in these pursuits that we should have after these means of grace that God has given to us so clearly helping us understand how to rightly pursue these spiritual disciplines. I said this guy's name, but David Mathis wrote a little book called Habits of Grace. It's excellent. It's short. It's on the resource, it was on the resource table back in 2018. Um, my goodness, it's been really helpful for me as I think through some of these things. Or some of you may have heard of Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. All those books are good, and you should read them. It's very helpful. But these books are not meant to give us tips and tricks to shortcut our godliness by following rules and regulations. That's not what's going on here. Again, if we think about it that way, we're going back to Galatians 3 and making a mockery of what Paul has said. We're thinking that somehow it can be by our effort. Far from it, they are trying to help us see that the Bible shows us that God's grace has regular pathways and channels where God moves and dispenses his grace. These men simply remind us that we would be wise to stand in these pathways, that we would be wise to place ourselves in these channels of his grace. Strange, it kind of sounds like something that we know about. We've kind of heard from the Old Testament, probably in poetry. How about Psalm 1? Listen to the first three verses. You'll know it immediately. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Let's call those evil channels, all right? So blessed is the man who doesn't do those things. Blessed the man, is his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, now here we go. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As your pastor, I'm simply encouraging you to come get fresh grace. I'll tell you, 
You don't have it in you. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't be more spiritual by yourself. You cannot somehow uh, white-knuckle yourself into more righteousness. You need to come and get fresh grace. I'm inviting us to come alongside of millions of other saints in our own time period and throughout the ages who have rejoiced to regularly come to the fountain of God's givingness, of God's grace, to pursue growth in holiness, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to, to, to train in godliness, as he tells us, and to find that our satisfaction in Christ can grow as we see him clearly and as we taste of him. In a few moments, we will do very, that, that very same thing. We'll, we'll participate in the body and blood of our Lord. Oh, that we would come to the fountain of God's grace and rejoice. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we rehearsed the gospel together in our prayers, in our singing, in our reading of the text, and now through the, the, the proclamation in, in the preaching of the word. And to find here nothing short of the gospel is what I want you to see. All of these things proclaim the glory of God and the wealth of his grace. I just wonder if we take it for granted. I just wonder if we have ever mistreated it. We have not taken it for what it is. Have we assembled this morning, maybe other mornings, for a reason other than the glory of God and the wealth of his grace? If that's so, which I am guilty of as well, I would just encourage you, brother and sister, look to Christ. What do you think? He's not going to give you grace? What have, what have I been talking about this whole time? He is here to give us grace. Repentant hearts he desires that we would confess and turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, pour out your grace on me, a sinner. It is what he desires. So this morning I just call you to look to Christ, to beg him for his grace. It's the beautiful call I'm making here to a heart that is under conviction by the gracious God who will pursue his people like a good shepherd pursue, pursues the sheep that wanders. So I call us then <laughs> to turn from our cheap religion and instead to drink deeply from the fountain of God's grace as we love and worship him for all that he truly is. Let's pray together. Great God, you are, you, are, you are wonderful. You are giving. You are gracious. I think it is fair to say that you are the only true and ultimate giver. All things come from you. Through Jesus, all things hold together. We don't know goodness outside of you, and so we praise you. We ask that you would help us to come hungrily in, in, in a way that we're thirsty for you. Would you fill us this morning? Would you give us repentant hearts that look to you for all that we need? We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.